Hey everybody, welcome to The Booking. My name is Nathan Alberts and I am your humble and obedient host joining you for yet another episode. I think this is 152, 153, somewhere in that range of The Booking. And today we are going to be talking about The Silver Chair. Arr. Silver Chair. Arr. A book about a marsh wiggle and a couple of humans who go on an adventure. It's got some Overseas. Plus, they some, are Dawn Pirates. That's the Dawn Treader. That's the Dawn Treader. You missed it there. You missed matey. it there. Yeah. There are more guidelines. That's my favorite they line. Go from into the cave. Pirates there. of the Caribbean. There may, be cave. there may be treasure in those caves. There may be, there is treasure. There's jewels Ooh, you can drink. Jewels you can drink. Are the new listeners there. gone? Are they gone? Okay, good. good. All right, I hear guys. The door closing. They're gone. <laughs> <laughs> they've ripped their earbuds out. Let's talk about the silver chair. My name is Nathan. Aaron Alberson, your humble and obedient host. We've got Brandon Scott Chastine over there. You do. The scholar who's a baller of reading. Perhaps. We're in a nice gingham style. Is that I what guess. we say that is? Yes. Gingham? Gingham. It is a gingham. Gingham. I don't know. He's I a scholar who's a baller. Brandon. I didn't even know I was wearing gingham. This is your... It, 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 the calico and the gingham cat. The calico dog and the gingham cat side by side on the table sat. Are you having a stroke? No. <laughs> this is a poem or childhood. <laughs> Well, Brandon, if people are listening to the podcast for the first time, I'm kind of like the guy that hosts the podcast. You kind of are. Kind of like that. I, I resemble that. <laughs> Brandon, he's yeah. got a brain the size of Jupiter. Whoa. And Mars is what I was going for, but Jupiter's way bigger. No, yeah. He's got a big brain and it's made big. of gas. <laughs> it's just full. <laughs> it's got a purple eye in the middle head. of it. <laughs> full of hot air. Full of hot air. No, no, no. Brandon's very, really smart. And- he provides intelligence to this podcast. Thank you. Then we've got Pastor Jacob Menzel over there. How you doing, Jake? Good. I have no middle name. Pastor and Jacob. provides zero intelligence. Kyle, Kyle. Menzel. Yes, Kyle. Now, Jake, his brain, almost the size of Jupiter, maybe not quite Brandon's brain. Would you be okay not with me saying that? Yeah, absolutely. But you're not one of Jupiter's moons. <laughs> you're not a pebble. <laughs> Brandon? Yes. It provides the brains. Jake provides like the soul, the heart, the pastoral insight. Yes. And I ask them questions and say things. You're the provocateur. I'm the gleeful provocateur. And today we are going to talk about the silver chair. We are. This YA novel, young adult novel. Is is it YA? I don't know. That's an interesting question. Would you guys say silver or uh, Narnia is YA? I think it's children's, children's lit. Yeah, it's children's lit. You know, if there is any Narnia novel that is YA, could we agree this might be the one? AKA, this is a more mature or maybe intended for more mature audiences than anything we've read thus far. This still felt pretty children's lit to me. Yeah, it me is. Too, it yeah. is. But I mean, I guess if we want to give you some bone, sure, Nathan. Yeah, if you just want to make me feel good, yeah. <laughs> answer yes, my question Nathan. to the affirmative. Yes, Nathan, this is the most YA of the books we've read so far. Okay. Thank you feel Brandon. validated? I feel You so are valid. the Lord of validation. I, yeah, I forgot to tell people, if you're a new listener, I am the Lord of validation because I validate people. <laughs> people can go back and listen to the episodes where we talk about how that. YA itself is a created category simply for the sake of money. We don't just talk about that. We talk about how the category of teenager is a category invented. Yeah. And how certain people have taken advantage of that to create a whole career for themselves. Mm-hmm. Listen, guys, there's a lot to talk about. J.K. Rowling thinks this novel is sexist. This one here, yeah. So we we got to talk about that, but let's not talk about that first. Let's let me just. Open does she give up. a reason? Yeah, she does, and we'll we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. Oh, I'm curious. I haven't um, heard this, Nathan. This is a fact I have not heard. No, it's true. I came across it in some research today. You were doing your research. I did a little research. Yes, I forgot to do my research. I don't know what planet this represents. Well, Brennan, I'm going to look it up, Nathan. Let's find it out. Well, Jill doesn't carry a map in her head for one. 
you want to talk about the sexism while Brandon looks up the planet? Yeah. J.K. Rowling says this novel is sexist. Jake, do you think this novel is sexist? Oh, it makes sense. Um, Specifically. I mean, I think all of Narnia you know, what, what can be accused of sexism. What was interesting is that I felt like, huh, C.S. Lewis is pretty traditional on sexuality, and he's a little transgressive here. Actually. Transgressive? How so? Uh, just the little, like, tit-for-tat jokes. Like, girls don't carry a map in their head. That's because there's something in it. Yeah, that's right. And then he Things says, like and then C.S. Lewis goes out of his way to say, I'm not sure whether this was actually true of all girls, but Jill, in fact, did not carry a map in her head or something like that. Yeah, something like she that. She didn't know which direction East was. Right. Or whatever it was. No, it's because there's any number of action. Every time there's an action scene, it's like, Jill huddled in a corner and tried Cried not and to cry or hurl or do anything stupid. Right, while Eustace grabs a sword and does something useless. And stupid. Yeah. And then there's the section where she doesn't get a knife or what. This is a common trope in, well, at least in wardrobe in this. She, she gets a dumb weapon and the boys get cool weapons. Eustace and Puddleglum get bows. She gets like a dorky little hunting knife or something like they that. They get bows? Right. Yeah. yeah and she starts they to argue about it. And then she starts to argue with Eustace about it. And then Puddleglum says, it'll all end with us knifing each other or something like that. And then they both yeah. shut up. And the point isn't so much the sexism as that Puddleglum's just Puddleglum. Yeah. So- is this novel sexist, boys? The serpent shows up and Jill's in the corner crying and Eustace is uselessly hacking at it and then Rillian snaps off its head. Rillian and Puddleglum actually both do some damage, I think. Eustace yeah, is right. pretty useless, and but Eustace, Eustace is at least trying and then Jill is like trying not to hurl. So yeah. I've actually seen this before. I We used to have, this is funny a fun, funny memory, we used to have a dictionary of Narnia. It was like this book, this reference book of Narnia that I owned growing up and it had an entry under the S section called Sexism in Narnia. And it talked about all the sexist tropes and it talked about how in the last battle, Lewis actually allowed Jill to fight, but that all through the other books, the women weren't allowed to fight. And it specifically called out Silverchair for having this serpent uh, situation where Jill does not avail herself. Of her strong arms. Yeah. So sad. If only we had Hermione. Because, you know, it's not like the novel began with Jill in a corner being bullied and needing to like grow. And it's not like in Harry Potter, whenever you have feats of strength that are needed, the men are called on. And yet when you have strength of mind that's needed, you have the women that are called on. I mean, it's not like there's a delineation even in J.K. Rowling's stupid books. <laughs> Brandon, are you being sarcastic and saying there is a delineation? Yeah, there is a delineation. If you think back to Harry Potter, when there are feats of strength that are needed, the it's men are called Hermione. on. It's never Hermione. Yeah, it's never Hermione. And yet when her wits are needed, it is Hermione. So even there, I mean, J.K. Rowling can get her head out of her. Clouds. Clowns. <laughs> Get ahead of our clowns. This sort of criticism when it doesn't, especially with an, when an author's criticizing another author mm -hmm. for something they don't even follow. Right. It's really frustrating. Well, with Rowling, I, I always get the impression she would love to actually be conservative, but she knows she can't. I don't know. That's just, maybe that's just me reading between the lines. No, but I think you're right. I mean, she likes the family unit. She likes to build stories around dads and Because there was, and, like, for example, there was absolutely no reason to say Dumbledore was. The sexuality she eventually assigns him. Right. Until the, her politics demanded it. That's absolutely right. So, and that's just so pathetic. <laughs> it's pathetic. <laughs> this is not a Harry Potter episode, though. No, but still, we, we've done plenty of those. All that to say, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? Sure. Isn't that the, isn't that the statement? That's the phrase. So, yeah, the, her, her crit criticism doesn't hold water there. So you're saying this book isn't sexist? 
What what is sexist, Nathan? I don't know, Brandon. I don't it's know, Bill false, Clinton. It's just a false. It's a bad question. Yeah, thinking yeah. it is a bad question. That's yeah. Well, why, guys? The listener wants to know. <clears throat> Sexism is a category of thinking that was invented by people who wanted to attack traditional and biblical understandings of sexuality, and so they made an ism out of it, and they use isms to claim a moral high ground that isn't theirs to claim. Every time somebody says an ism or an ist, sexism or sexist, I cringe, I hate it implicitly. And I don't care when we say it, I still think it's something that we should never say. Sometimes it's handy shorthand for talking about something, but... Even the shorthand I despise. I know what you mean. So there you have it. There you go. (laughs) C.S. Lewis does acknowledge a difference between Jill and Eustace and everybody. And if you don't like that, then... You don't like the way God made the world. You don't make, like the way God made the world. Yeah, you've never been in a house at night when there is a loud noise <laughs> with a man and a woman inside of the house. <laughs> I mean, that's true, right? The when man. There's a loud noise. The man. The man jumps out of bed and grabs the nearest weapon. Mm-hmm. The woman says, "Honey, did you hear the loud noise? <laughs> Do something." Yeah. Ah. <laughs> like it or not, that's. And, Across well, the board, the what thing. you're going to find. You don't even need to be in a house with a man and a woman. You can be in a house with a man, and there's a loud noise. And if he's a man, most of the time, he's going to get up and grab his weapon. Yeah. Well, you guys are misogynist pigs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> well, well, here's a question. D- do you think that little girls will feel bad when they read the, or will not be well-serviced by oh, the please. part where Jill is cowering in a corner instead of helping kill the serpent? Well, if. She has good parents. Hopefully the parents will help her realize that she should be grateful to have a strong boy around her that can protect her in those times. <laughs> <laughs> or a dad. I mean, the, I mean yeah, it's actually, dad. It's actually yeah. the, the dad figures that do a good job. Eustace. And Puddle Glum is kind of the dad figure here, mm-hmm. right? There. Puddle so. Glum's the dad figure, and really in sort of is too. By that yeah. point, yeah. I mean, in that sense, it's really great. What you got is a couple dad figures being effective, a boy doing daddish sort of things, but not really knowing what he's doing, but flailing around at doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there are a number of yeah, times in, so. the, in the course of that book where it's like, you know, Puddle Glum or Rillian are, are, are very concerned about protecting Jill. Mm-hmm. Rillian is very concerned about protecting Jill. Puddle Glum is very concerned about protecting Jill. Mm-hmm. When it comes even to the very end of the book and it comes to getting out of the cave, yeah. right? It's like, Jill's the only one who's little enough to fit. And then as soon as she gets pulled up, they're cursing themselves. We did that because it was expedient, but it was the wrong thing to do. It was the wrong thing to do. We exposed her to danger Mm -hmm. because it was expedient. We deserve the curse of the lion to fall upon us. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and what I like is if there is a little girl who reads this and thinks, oh, man, I would do so much better. Lewis has their number because Jill is like, I can have a bow. Come on. Like, what's the problem? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He does that. Twice. I mean, he does that in wardrobe, and then he does that in this, well, I, where the girl's just like, come on, like yeah. like a real girl might be. And, and I think about my house, mm-hmm. if there's a spider. Right. My oldest daughter's screaming. My youngest daughter's screaming. My wife doesn't want to go near it. My little boy, Henry, is like stomping around ineffectively. I'm going to kill the spider. But at least he thinks he's going to do something. Right. <laughs> right. He's not getting the spider, but he's trying his hardest. Right. And then finally, dad comes in and gets the spider, or Elliot, who's now old enough to do it himself. He's like the really in character. Well, yeah, I mean, that is really true. Like, bugs are really, like, if you have kids and there are bugs, it's a really great thing. Like, even your little boys who are kind of scared of bugs know that they should pretend that they want to kill the bugs. Yeah. 
Like, you don't have to teach it. Little boys are like, I'm going to kill the bugs. Every one of my boys has been like, I'm going to kill bugs. I'm going to protect mom. I'm going to, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. I kill the bugs, you know. My girls, they're not necessarily like. Jumping up onto chairs and Jumping onto skirts. chairs or anything. Yeah, exactly. But they're also like, eh. I'm not going to kill well, the bug. Yeah, I'm not going to bother with the bug. That's what the boys are for. Right. Yeah. You know? And by the way, that's a pretty sweet deal if you're a girl. Like, instead of complaining sh- about it, why not be happy? You don't have to kill the bug. How many bug guts on you? As the designated <laughs> bug killer in my family, let me just say, like, <laughs> yeah. it might be nice <laughs> not it's to have to kill these scary have, yeah. bugs. <laughs> just squish a cockroach with your slipper. Yeah. yeah. I was at soccer practice tonight for my daughter, and it, it was pretty fascinating watching. She's one of the youngest in a broad range of girls on a on a select travel team. I mean, she's like almost literally half the size of some of the girls out there. And so some of the girls can kick the ball really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And she was in goal. And there were times where she just sort of cringed as balls were being blasted at her. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, if this, and nobody really was too bothered by it. She's not going to spend a lot of time in goal. She's not a goalie. She's fast. She's short. She's skilled. She knows how to get into space. She's going to be a forward. She's going to be a, you know, out on the wings doing stuff like that on offense. But I was just thinking about my sons play soccer too, and I know what the boys' practices are like. If one of my boys had cringed like that in goal, he would have been ripped up one side and down the other. Like by you, by the other boys, by the coach, by that's right, it, by yeah, everybody, by everybody. Yeah. He would have heard it from the coach. He would have heard it from the other boys, and he would have heard it from me in the car. But and that's because this is a patriarchal Christian soccer league. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most communist pagan soccer league I've ever seen in my life. And that is why the silver chair is not sexist. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, that's a, that's where we were. <laughs> More like the sexist chair. The yeah. stupid book, guys. What did you think about the silver chair? I liked it, Nathan. Yeah. Yeah. I what did you like about it, Brandon? You would ask. When I thought it was a horrible, Uh-oh. terrible, Uh-oh. you know, riff on Plato's stupid cave. Oh, was... Plato's stupid cave. Yes, yeah. the, the, the classic philosophic <laughs> metaphor, Plato's stupid cave. Well, uh, you know, Lewis, he's so platonic and yeah. he gets into these stupid philosophical ways of thinking. And I just want to spend a lot of time ripping on the philosophical things behind this book. because Jake. Come on. What? Somebody, Jake. Somebody, what? Somebody's... Had sour grape. Yeah. <laughs> Someone had sour. Somebody got up on the <laughs> wrong, wrong side, side of the bed. bed. Yeah. All right. Somebody's still trying to knock people off their high horses. That's what. <laughs> let's, let's go back to last episode. Well, hey, guys. Oh, Brandon. Yeah. Voyage of the Dawn Twitter is the stupidest thing yeah. ever written by humans. Hey, Nathan, there's too much of his Platonism yeah, it's like towards the end. Completely. His view of heaven. Mr. You know. Might as well be CS Gnostic. Oh, what's that bright, shining light over there? It's Jake bringing his. <laughs> Truth. Hello. <laughs> his wisdom, his practicality. Jake just likes the book because it's fun. <laughs> All right, we're back. <laughs> Jake, are you trying to take revenge on us for what we did? Or and what by we? I really mean Brandon. <laughs> yes, yes, I am trying to take. Fair revenge. enough, Na- uh, Jake. Not Nathan. <laughs> because I have prejudices against things that make me feel claustrophobic. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about baggage then. So, Jake, you're gonna, I, I'm getting the, the. Did you like this book when you were a kid? Oh, let's, let's, what's your baggage? What baggage did you bring to the Silver Chair? It was Jake? not my favorite book as a kid. No. Where would you rank it? Actually, I've got this right here. Um, remember we did these. Uh, I think I would have ranked it as one of my least favorite as Whoa. a kid. Yeah, as Jake. A kid, Jake sure. said. Um, all right, Jake. This is what you predicted about this book. Remember early on when we were. I don't remember what I predicted, but I remember we did that sort of thing. I said it would be my favorite. 
Brandon said he would be thrilled by it, find the elements compelling, and it would be his third favorite. I think Brandon was really <laughs> angry about having to predict things. I was very <laughs> angry. I don't like this sort of exercise. <laughs> um, and Jake said it will improve. Hated the claustrophobia and obvious allergy is what I wrote here. Maybe I meant allegory. <laughs> the obvious allegory. The obvious yeah. allergy that Which Jake is what has I came out of came out and was picking on yeah the allegory of the cave yeah, yeah. the allergy very, of the very, cave very good <laughs> so jake apparently you said you wanted it to improve you hated the claustrophobia so you, would you say you really didn't like this book back in the day or yeah i didn't like it as a kid I, I i was very much and i don't know how much of this all connects to you know whatever my psyche as a kid but maybe it does so i'll talk about it. i grew up on a river town the idea of open spaces the river the sea that sort of thing vacations to florida every every really enchanted by the, the don treader was my kind of book my right. kind of like open spaces let's explore what's beyond the horizon traveling down into a deep dark cave oh man i hate that sort of thing i hate caving i like going to caves like mammoth cave where you can be on a sort of guided tour and it's safe but if i have to i get claustrophobic we had a big discussion about this with a, a friend of ours that devolved into us talking about to me claiming that i would rather face a great white shark in open battle. Well, I think our friend actually ocean. brought this up because that was part of this discussion. He said, because you said you're stuck in a cave and you read stories like, you know, old stories of people that died in caves because they got stuck yeah. the wrong way. Yeah. I remember a story of a guy who people knew he was down there and they could go down there to see him but and talk to him, him but they couldn't get him out because he had just gotten himself stuck and he died. And I remember being That's horrified awful. by those kinds of stories as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. And I've never done any kind of What's the word? I'm sure there's a word Spelunking. for it. Spelunking. Well, but there's like, you can go to places where that have already been explored, but then there's also like, so-and-so has a cave on his property. Let's check it out kind of stuff, which Brandon actually has some caves on his property. Jeremy does. Jeremy, Brandon, the Dark, the Dark Lord, Lord, Lord of Death. Death has some scary caves. And I would never dream of going into those. I find the whole idea to be claustrophobic and scary and terrible. Yeah. Well, and our friend said, what if you were in the ocean and a great white shark was attacking you? You're, the the inevitability of death is the same. Isn't the terror level the same? Isn't it, aren't we and talking the about is, things? the answer is no? It's the not is equivalent. Absolutely not. Because the fact is, in the open sea with the shark, there's hope. There's a fighting chance. If you are caught, you're not moving tons of rock and earth. Mm-hmm. It just is what it is, and it's over. And you have to sit there in the darkness by yourself while you deal with the reality that you are stuck. You, you cannot move. It is over. But with the shark, even if statistically there's less of a chance, it feels like there's a fighting chance. Anything can happen. You can punch the shark in the gills. A dolphin from Flipper can come and punch the shark in the gills. Like Flipper has sent this dolphin. Especially from yes. Flipper, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Something can happen. God can, a thing can happen Lightning. that distracts the shark. A meteor. That can, yes. yeah, anything can happen. Like you can fight, you can swim. Something can distract the shark. So things can happen. Mm-hmm. There's possibilities and hope give me the shark at sea but don't trap me in a cave with no hope <laughs> and nothing like but utter darkness give me the shark at sea <laughs> don't trap right me there. in a cave without hope <laughs> you could always cut your own arm off did you see 27 hours later i've never seen it never wanted to that kind of thing has always been horrifying to me you get I, down to that nerve that you have to cut mm-hmm. yeah I, that would suck brand um <laughs> no no, let's just listen. Not. It's not about. It's I'd rather not, the shark bite it off. And it's, it's not about the reality either. It's like, like for example, planes are statistically so much better than driving. But 
would I rather die in a car crash than or a plane? I, of course, I don't want to go but down. But are a plane. you going to be able terrifying. to drink jewels in a plane? <laughs> Come on, man! What are you talking about? Are you going to be man. able to drink jewels anywhere? No, this is a shark is not going to offer you. Shut jewels up. to drink. What are you trying to? How are you trying to contribute to this conversation? <laughs> I actually don't know. Spooku, <laughs> yeah. baggage. That's yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. I never appreciated. Jake told me to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you deserved it. I did. Um, and I never appreciate. Still sound that I hear from you, Brandon. So <laughs> <laughs> let's try and be a little bit more shutted up. <laughs> Why do I feel like the one who's being silenced here? <laughs> <laughs> so baggage. Yeah, I. I never appreciated spending a whole bunch of time in a deep, dark cave. I didn't like it. I find it claustrophobic. I find that in and of itself horrific. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to say, if you wanted to make your young adult right. case, the way to make it is that this is, of all the Narnia books, this is the horror novel. Mm-hmm. There's a strong case to make for that. And the cave is a big part of that. Right. Uh, the creatures that appear out of nowhere, the armies in the darkness, the terrifying things that you can't see or hear things like lurking around the corner the serpent the mm-hmm. all that stuff the lights going out on them horror novel right so it at least has the most horror elements and maybe that's part of what i didn't like but i was pretty acclimated to young adult horror right at the time i read this sort of thing goosebumps 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 fear street thank you rl stein so i don't know there was that and then there was i remember thinking that the cave stuff was really on the nose and I don't know why with all the other on the nose allegory in Narnia, the cave stuff struck me as being really on the nose. But to me, the kinds of things that were going on in the cave, the whole point of the cave felt really contrived as a kid. Yeah, as a kid, Hmm. it felt contrived. Hmm. That's interesting. And I didn't like that either. And maybe the reason it felt contrived is because I just didn't like caves and I didn't like the darkness and I didn't like feeling claustrophobic. So I was just ready to not like it and see through it and refused to suspend my disbelief. That's possible. But I was only, what, eight, nine when I read these for the first time? I remember more about how much I didn't like the silver chair than I remember what I liked about other books, (laughs) except for how much I loved the Don Treader. And I think I read them in the proper order. I read them back to back. And I think it was maybe as much the contrast as anything. Like, So I don't know. So that's the baggage that I brought to the book. I'd reread it. And, you know, between being nine or whenever I read it and now, and I think appreciated it more and liked Puddle Glum and also saw the utility of the, you know. The central allegory. The central allegory. um, How many people are taken in by the idea of, I see, what a pretty little game. You've seen a lamp and therefore you've imagined a bigger, brighter lamp called, and you've named it the sun. Mm-hmm. Oh, you've seen a cat and you've imagined a bigger and stronger and scarier cat and you've named it a lion. What a pretty game. All that sort of thing. I can't explain why that felt clunky and stupid as a kid and why as an adult, maybe it's just as an adult, maybe it, there was something about it as a kid that I, in child logic, understood to be wrong. Whereas an adult, I see how many people are taken in by the stupidity of that kind of argument. Right. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe like the witch was being obvious, maybe. Afraid. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is a weird thing in that as a, as a reader, as a child especially, you can't really put yourself in the shoes of the heroes because you know there's an Arnia. You've read a bunch of books about it. Yeah. yeah you know there's a sun. You know all that. You're not for a moment fooled by the witch. So it's somewhat unique in, in that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's really what it is. And I'm giving myself more credit than 
as a kid, as a child reader, than I deserved of just like, yeah, there really is a son, duh. Maybe that's all I was really feeling. At well, the there's, you could imagine, like if C.S. Lewis tells you it's the greatest Turkish delight of all time, then it's like, well, okay, I guess it was some pretty tempting Turkish delight. Mm-hmm. But if some lady's being like, there is no sun, it's like, uh, uh, yeah, there, yeah, there kind of is. I'm I reading under it by its light right now. <coughs> yeah. Do you bring any particular baggage to this book, Brandon? Uh, no. All right. Yes, <laughs> answered. I brought the baggage of the BBC production, which had Tom Baker played Puddlegum, and he is a very famous Doctor Who, if people don't know, which probably no one listening to this oh, does yeah the scarf guy the scarf guy yeah he's like the before the current run of doctor who nerd yeah well i don't care that much about doctor who but i know about these things because my life is that empty and pointless tom baker is like everybody's favorite doctor who before the modern doctor who like of the old doctor who he's he's everybody's favorite before scrooge mcduck was doctor who yes well before uh Who's scrooge mcduck uh david, david, tennant. david tennant and david uh, tennant's this book was always one of my favorites and I guess we can say I was always the horror guy, so maybe I liked the more horrific elements, but I really liked it. The I, I think what I remember about it from a kid was Puddle Glum rocked. He was yes, really was funny. I really liked him. Tom Baker in the movie played him, and he did a really, really good job. So that was probably actually the ga- game set match right there was obviously, to my mind, the best Narnia character. I don't know that I would still... I think I actually probably would still agree with that. But certainly as a kid, I just thought Pelagon was hilarious. He kind of expressed my point of view because I was always a little bit more depressed and cynical than all the kids around me. That was kind of my shtick. And so Pelagon or Neor and these kinds of characters were my favorites. And Pelagon was great. I mean, he's the best. And he's just... The fact that he... I remember watching the movie, which has all the dialogue. It's like Narnia pretty much transcribed into into BBC movie form. It's one of those really close adaptations and what was nice about it was like i said i had all the dialogue and so i just remember my dad thinking puddle glum was hilarious the part where he says the other marsh wiggles think he's too he has his head too much in the clouds and he's too happy-go-lucky and all that stuff i can mm-hmm. still remember my dad laughing at that and reading the book again i still really loved yeah, he's great he's one of the greatest creations of this series yeah yeah i think so well defend yourself defend myself yeah I say he's the worst creation of this series. I say I say he's just another Lewis Levin, the Eeyore pagan idiots of the world. Oh, who, when did Lewis ever love the Eeyore pagan idiots of the world? Yeah, that's, in that's every good... single book that he ever wrote. That's, Where? In that hideous strength, you've got the <laughs> yeah, one guy. The gardener guy. The gardener guy. guy. Which apparently and, Puddleglum is based on C.S. Lewis's gardener. Right. So probably both those guys are based on yeah. the same guy. Yeah. And what was... And... Uh, this uh, book is based on Luna. What, Trumpkin? Luna? Trumpkin, Prince yeah. Caspian, Trumpkin. Doubting, yeah. Grumpy. Okay. Never mind, he does. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah, but I think it's a little different with Puddleglum because Puddleglum is secret, secretly a believer and he just likes to look situations. No, he's not even secretly a believer. He's openly a believer. He's openly yeah. a believer. Because right. he's the one who defends them when the witch. He's the one who actually has more faith in Aslan than all of them. Right. Yeah. And when Puddleglum is given the mission... He's to, just a to good escort Southern the kids. He just wants to do it. Yeah. I mean, I really think that's the way you have to think about Puddle Glum is he's just like a dude that just yeah. does what he's told and yeah. he does know. what he's supposed to do. He's just gloomy about it. He's yeah. just like, well, you know, this might end in death, but you know, yeah, he's, you do the right thing whether it ends in death or not. He so is the treasurer of a Southern Baptist deacon church. Right? Yeah. He's, yeah. He's a treasurer of a Southern Baptist church, head deacon. Right. Well, this is probably going to put us under, but it's the right thing to do. At least being underground, it'll save on funeral expenses. Like, yeah. That's a great line. 
that's what Puddlegum being optimistic. And I think yeah. you actually have to sort of understand that the character is like, well, you know, at least we didn't knife each other. Puddlegum's yeah. always actually trying to be optimistic, <laughs> given his completely dire, <laughs> dour, dour, horrible reading of the situation of, of every situation. He always says the optimistic thing. You have to actually understand Puddlegum as an optimist. And I think you actually have to understand your your average Southern yeah, Baptist true. deacon. Well, that's what he says. He's, yeah. You always got to look... He, he repeats that sort of thing a couple of times. You got to look for the good in things, right? Yeah. Right. And if he was just Eeyore, if he just always said the opposite of what was true in every circumstance, he wouldn't be that great of a character. And I think in the first chapter or two, you kind of, you're supposed to think, oh, okay, this guy's just a Dickensian over the top guy that just always, like his character trait is he's always gloomy. But then he's constantly right where Jill and Eustace are wrong, where they mm-hmm. want to give up and just go to the giant's house. Puddleglum is like, let's not do this. Yeah. And, th- and then he has the sort of nobility, or I don't know what you want to say about it, but when they get to the giant's house and he's like, this is a terrible idea, but we're here now, so let's ring the freaking doorbell. Like, yeah. we're not... There's a manfulness about him. There's a manfulness about him. He's not like a gloomy, effeminate, life-hating Well, he's the jerk. one who's able to withstand the witch's it's perfumes. Just, yeah, we've made it... In the case of the giants, is we've made a decision. Let's own the decision. Right. Let's live by the decision. For right or For better or for worse, right or wrong... This is a decision we made, so let's do it. Right. Yeah. And he has that sort of mentality of, yeah, yeah. Well, it, he sort of like, he reminds me more of Soren Kierkegaard than of any of the, I mean, I know it's a weird thing to say, but and not to get all, he had his night of K-N-I-G-H-T, night right. of infinite resignation. Right. That's sort of what Puddleglum is, is the, he's the knight of infinite resignation. He's resigned to whatever happens, however bad it may be, he's just going to do the thing and He's resigned to it being the worst possible outcome at right. every possibility. But I, so there's this thing that uh, I was going to say my girlfriend, but my wife, I guess now, yeah, hates, which is I always say, she really doesn't like this, but I always say the worst thing that could possibly happen is you could miserably fail and die. And to me, that's actually an encouraging thing to say. Like the worst possible thing that could happen in this, you know, she's going into some situation she's nervous about. I say, the worst thing that could happen when you give this speech is you could fall off the podium, break your neck and die. You could fall off the podium, break your neck, and be paralyzed for 60 years and then die. Because it's not likely to happen. Yeah, um, and well, but also, what if it did? God is in his universe. You know where you're going. Like, who cares? I mean, when you take the cosmic, when you take the dour cosmic existential view, it's actually quite helpful, in my mind at least. Like, I sympathize with Puddleglum. The worst thing that could happen is we could all die and at least we'd save on funeral express- expenses. Like, yeah. I can actually track with that character. I don't think it's a Dickensian conceit. I actually think there is a kind of person who says, okay, well, the worst thing that could happen is this, but that actually enables us to take yeah. a step forward. Yeah, well, it's like if you ever saw if you ever saw Band of Brothers, mm-hmm. there's the one character, and he's a terrible character. He's a wicked man, but he does a whole lot of heroic stuff, and his secret is that he's already dead, mm-hmm. that he decided when he signed his name, he decided when he signed his name that he was dead. Right. And that he would live, from then on, while he was in war, as though he were already dead. I'm already right. dead, therefore, I have nothing to lose. Right. And so he does some heroic stuff, because he's already dead. What does it matter if he dies? Right. That was a really helpful uh, metaphor for me in a certain way uh, when I watched that of the Christian life. You know, we died, our life is hidden with Christ and God. We're dead. It's over. It doesn't matter what happens to us. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Like- to live is Christ, to die is gain. We're dead. We died. Our life is hidden with Christ and God. We're dead. It's over. There's little, the worst that can happen is that we'll die there's and a be with Christ. Where, so who cares? 
live for Christ, right? And then the Apostle Paul makes that really explicit when he's like, if I hang out here, I get to help you guys some more. That's great. If I die, I go to be with Christ. I can't decide which one would be better. Either way, I win. Yeah, win-win. There's no losing here. Right. Because I'm already dead. Puddleglum does not rejoice in that the way that he should, the way the Bible calls us to. No, he is a Dickensian grump. But the reality of it, embracing the reality of it, does enable him to be heroic. Mm -hmm. And embracing the reality of that as Christians enables us to be, dare I say, heroic Mm -hmm. and to rejoice in the process. Rejoice while we're being persecuted. Right. Why? You win. Right. Because Jesus wins. And you're in him and he's in you. Why do you guys think that Lewis, given that character, had him be the one that could stand up to the enchantress? The one thing that Puddleglum was acclimated to was facing down the worst possible scenario. Right. And so the witch was presenting Puddleglum with worst case scenarios. There's no sun. There is no Aslan. There is no nothing. And he was able to look at all that and say, yeah, but... So what? I don't care what you say. You know, he does this sort of Pascalian wager sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cheap. Let's be honest about it. It's kind of cheap, right? We'll make a world to lick your crummy world. Yeah, and it's that Lewis quote of, uh, you know, if I, I think it's Lewis, if I find in myself a desire that cannot be satisfied by anything, the only conclusion is that I was made for another world. Right. right? Yeah. The world that we've fancied and imagined is better than the world that you have to offer. So even if it's fake, we'll believe in it. Right. Screw your stupid little world. There's a lot of stupidity in that and foolishness. But there is something right and good and true as well, which is that, no, the one thing that I know, you may have confused me about what's true, Mm -hmm. but the one thing that I know is that you're lying. Right. And so I will reject the lie, even if I can't quite clearly see what the truth is at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. And there are so many times in, I think, our Christian walk in our lives where we sin clouds our judgment, we get confused, and we have those moments where it's just like, wait a minute, the one thing I know is that this is a lie. Right. And I can't quite see clearly enough to embrace the truth, but I can see clearly enough to reject this lie. Mm-hmm. And, and trust God that if I reject the lie, He'll help me see and embrace and understand the truth. Right. And that's Puddle Glum's approach to life mm-hmm. is I will reject the lie. And who knows if the truth could ever be as good as, but I won't take the lie. There's a certain virtue to that. And it's not all virtuous and there's some bad mixed up in it. Yeah. I mean, we but, as Christians are not irrationalists. You know, if, if somebody could be- prove that Christ didn't raise from the d- dead, then we wouldn't believe in him. But he did. And so we do, if that makes sense. You know, in other words, it's not just Pascal's wager. It's not just, well, Christianity seems better than the alternative. So I guess I'll believe in it. Right. No, it's the Holy Spirit testifying in our yeah, hearts. Yeah, that, that whole, these that are whole true. garbage, that really is garbage. And that's a lot of the garbage that people talk about. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's very Lewisian, actually. The idea of even if none of this is true, it's what's best for human flourishing, and therefore nothing is lost. It's only gain if I embrace this. And if it turns out there's no God, then I will have lived a full... You know, the Apostle Paul says, 
If there's no resurrection, we are most of all men most most to be pitied. Because we're taking up our crosses. Like if there's no reward, then that's the Christian life. This sucks. Yeah. Like that's not, we are of all men most to be pitied. If you cannot say with the apostle Paul, if there's no resurrection from the dead, I am of all men most to be pitied, then you've not begun to live the Christian life and you should not call yourself a Christian. You need to repent. If you really don't believe it, you should be eating and drinking and being married because why would you? Tomorrow we die. Yeah. So as a theology lesson, I don't like that section with Puddle Glum, but as an existential rebuke to a dilemma that we've all had, I love it because I've been there. I've had that moment where you know, I, I, what I'm really thinking of, maybe this is too graphic for our listeners, I don't know, but what I'm no, really- I think it's the the clearest, easiest thing to talk about. You no, know, what I'm thinking of is uh, being a younger man and being really tempted by pornography and even giving into it. And sometimes when you're doing that, when you're in the midst of that sin, wow, this feels great. And sure, it's a shabby little pleasure, but it's the pleasure that I have. And right now it feels so much bigger than the pleasure of knowing Christ. You know, it's like sitting under this lamp and getting a little bit of light seems to be illuminating a lot more than this mystical sun that I've heard so much about, S-U-N. That I can't find my way to. That I can't find my way to. And in those moments, you have to be puddle glum and say, there's a sun. And you have the idea of the sun, and it's because you know there's a sun. And look at this lamp. It's a shabby piece of crap. You have to be like uh, Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, plugging his ears and saying, no, 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 no. Which is what puddle glum taps into that exact same thing. When he starts stamping on the fire, it's no, 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 no. The only thing I know is no. So no. Well, what lends credence and dignity to even what's kind of crappy about that is him shoving his hand in the fire and just saying, Jesus, Jesus, basically. I mean, and, and I think we've all, if we're Christians, we've actually had those moments where it's just like this shabby, pathetic thing seems like the real thing. And all the things that I know that are true seem like the fake thing. And so I just say, life, life, eternal life. Jesus, help me. Yep. And then I remind myself of the real reality. And so it's a powerful moment. And you have to love Puddle Glum for it, even though you can't quite love C.S. Lewis for constructing it the way that he did. But I like that. And C.S. Lewis always had a great line in Temptation. I think the screw tape letters are some of the best yeah. things that he did. He understood how temptation works. And we can yep. say New York Platonist this and cave analogy that, but the way the witch operates is a really good insight into how temptation works. Temptation yeah. works and how especially the modern atheistic agnostic <laughs> machine works. Yep. I mean, mm-hmm. just tell you know, it's the people that come to you and say, Well, there's all kinds of creation stories. There's all kinds of lamps like out there. There's all kinds of messiahs. What a pretty little game you're playing with yourself, but don't you think it's time to put childish things behind you? And you know, I'm like to think of myself as a Christian who's got a little skin in the game, but I can still be pretty flipped out by that kind of thing. I'll think, gosh, wow, it is pretty crazy that there's so many Messiah stories out there. I must just be believing in the one that makes me feel good. You know, there's a lot of lamps mm-hmm. out there. I guess I came, you know, it would be nice if there was a sun, but have I seen it? Do I have any real evidence? You know, maybe there's something to this Carl Young, Joseph Campbell stuff. Right. Yeah. Jesus is what we needed for a while to better ourselves, but actually we don't need him anymore just like you know the duffel puds need a a fallen angel a demon a fallen star to guide them until they can handle aslan who knows what's beyond that yep yeah well okay so that's puddle glum i want to say one other thing about puddle glum which is i think he's really funny i laughed and laughed at him as a kid and i I laughed at him this time yeah i mean he really is funny in the same way that eeyore is funny which eeyore is one of my favorite literary characters and i love when but he's funny because he kind of takes delight remember 
Oh yeah, we hated AA Milne. A. A. Eeyore Milne sucks. Is the devil. <laughs> Eeyore is. We hate AA Milne and C.S. Lewis. Yeah, we, we want to burn them it. both. Their yeah. effigies are yep. burning. We'd like to forever. dig up their bones, grind them into a milkshake, um, and then have Brandon eat it. Yeah, that's what I do. I yeah. eat the bones. He doesn't of even drink milkshakes. He, he eats milkshakes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I eat. I gnaw on the bones of C.S. Lewis and AA mm. Milne every day. Yeah, that's what he does. That's all I do. I don't eat anymore. Yeah, I I eat their bones. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh. What were you saying, Brandon? And you take Mark Twain's shin bone and I beat their bones with it. Yeah, yeah that's right. And I just lo- and, and, and I just paste, and then you brush squeal your teeth. gleefully. Ah! Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon's an old witch. Yeah. By the way, what were we saying? Yeah, you were saying so. I said puddle gum was funny, and then you said, and then I started to compare. Oh, he's him to not Eeyore. the same as Eeyore because he actually, I think he takes a sort of delight in some of his uh, observations. Eeyore? Eeyore does, or puddle no, gum? no, puddle gum does. Yeah. Like he enjoys some of his realizations about. The absurdity of these situations. Yeah, I think Puddle Glum is one of those characters that's a little bit meta. Like he can actually kind of comment on the story a little bit, and the author can yeah. use him a little bit. Like Michael Crichton used Ian Malcolm in the great novel Jurassic Park to make points that he wanted yeah, to like make. I, about. I don't remember the part in particular, but there's one thing where he makes an observation, and it's almost like he's smiling while he makes it. Yeah, like if this were to happen, uh, it could happen, kids. Who knows? Right, right, right. He's a little bit tongue in cheek. Yeah, yeah, he is, and, and I personally. I, I like it when, you know, Jane Austen's my favorite author, right? I like it when authors... Are you, when you Yeah. Since when? What? Yeah, I, I kind of like her. Because I, like I like Texas so much in Austin, Texas. I thought J.K. Rowling was your favorite author. Well, she's right up there. Rolling, rolling, rolling. Rolling, rolling, rolling. <laughs> <laughs> I just like that you can tell that C.S. Lewis likes Puddle Glum. Rolling and Ernest Cline. And, Cl- and, and, J- and Jane Austen. And Jane Austen. And um, what's Witchface's name? She wrote... Wrinkle in oh, Madeline yeah. Lingle. Yeah, Madeline Lingle. Miss, I tried to publish this book 27 times. Yeah. And for some reason, they said yes. Curse you, number 30. <laughs> Perseverance, overrated. Yep. Yeah. Perseverance, very overrated. One of my personal favorite episodes of the bookening, us trashing Wrinkle in Time, by the way. <laughs> a lot of people like that episode. <laughs> people, people, sometimes people don't like it when we have a chip on our shoulder, but I think people sometimes really- Sometimes they really do. People really enjoyed us trashing Wrinkle in Time. I well, think, if there's ever a book that deserved it. I think a lot of people read that thing and were like, "What? why do people like this? And so- Yeah. Why did my fifth grade teacher make us read this? I hated this. Yeah. We could probably do the same thing with Johnny Tremaine, and Johnny Tremaine might turn out, if we read it, to be a great book, but if we trashed it- people would still love us for it. Because everybody under the planet, of our generation at least, had to read that stupid thing. They had to read it and they hated reading it. We got to do another one of those. That's cathartic. A kid, like just trashing something? tear up something. Ready Player Two? I don't know when it's coming out, but let's do it. It is coming out. You guys know. I'm going to defend it though. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And make Brandon (laughs) (laughs) denounce Tolstoy in the process. (laughs) Brandon. No. No. If you are going to dislike Ready Player Two, man, you can't like Tolstoy. I'm going to find Only by spitting on Tolkoy. Tolstoy, can you? Tolkoy. (laughs) Tolkoy. Tolkoy. Listen, Puddle Gum's great. I I, want to say something about cave stories, Jake. Uh, Listen, there's. If I wanted to be a devil's advocate, I'd be like, you know what Lewis did? He read Tolkien and Mm -hmm. was like, you know what was cool? The marshes and the mines of Moria. I'm going to just take those two things, but then I'm going to use Plato's cave thing, and I'm going to make an allegory out of it. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, if, if Lewis was a 13-year-old <laughs> I like thinking of Lewis, Presbyterian so. <laughs> poser, then sure, that's exactly what Hey, it, guys, guess what I'm going to do? <laughs> I took some fawns, and I put them in my story. And <laughs> there's naiads and triads. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, he's drinking his... Uh... <laughs> macchiato at the Christian coffee shop. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Sorry, you would uh, defend Moria. All right, so, so, does every town have a Christian coffee shop? I don't know. Yes, Bloomington uh, does. The poorhouse. Yeah. 
Listen. Which is the odd spot where every professor wants to meet with you at the poorhouse. Like the non-Christian prayer poorhouse. Have you ever heard of Boonville, Indiana? Yeah. I don't know that there are any people that live in Boonville, but I remember going to concerts at the Christian coffee shop there. So weird. Yeah. There are, coffee, there are Christian coffee shops all over Fort Worth, and they're always started by these posers. If you're a Christian coffee shop owner, then you're the exception to what Brandon's saying. If you're listening to the booking, yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're listening to the booking, you probably truly are, but- now, If you're about to give us one star, then you're exactly you're the target. what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I've always liked horror stories, but horror is all about drawing back the curtain on something scary, letting you experience it, and then throwing the curtain back up. So- Modern horror, a lot of times, what they call body horror, where it's really graphic and about- Which is just gore. Which is just gore. I have never liked that kind of stuff. What I like is the kind of creepy, like, what if a headless horseman came after me? I'm not going to pretend like I didn't get into some, some darker stuff in my dark emo teenage years and all that kind of stuff. But now, what I like is just, like, spooky stuff. And spooky stuff really- doesn't even draw back the curtain. It just kind of kicks it for a minute. And then you you see something kind of spooky and you are like, oh, that's what's behind the veil. And then it closes and you don't, you, you, get, a, you don't get to stare. You just get a glimpse. I, I, all that to say, I cannot read a story about being buried alive. I cannot watch. There's a movie called The Descent that I tried to watch about these women that go spelunking and they get trapped in a cave. And I can't watch it. It's, it's, too, it's too much. It's somebody just pulling back the curtain saying, look at the horror of what this would be. This kind of thing to me feels more like what I want a good horror story to do, which is it's kind of a vaccination. Like it it lets you experience the creepiness of being in a cave or of hiding in a cave and then sliding down, which to me is that's the scariest part in this story where they're just sliding down and down and down and down. It's before you know there's Earthmen or anybody else down there or civilization. It's just like that would suck. Yeah. Being, like putting yourself in Jill's shoes. Like And, and when she but gets down the there. That's not the scariest part to me. What, what is the scariest part? The scariest part to me is when the Earthmen are forcing them to go through these tiny little passageways yeah, that they awful. don't know if they can get through because they they may be too big. Right. Wow. That, to me, is the scariest. You guys really are claustrophobic. I, I know. I am, in fact, I am. I, I don't like working in attics or um, huh. crawl spaces. I hate that kind of stuff. Okay. Yep. Um, well, this is a difference between us. Well, You're not some of it, I mean, honestly. I mean, I'm... Look, I have a legitimate fear that I won't fit through certain spaces. <laughs> it is legitimate. <laughs> believe me, folks. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, no. no. I, I mean, I think have you really should take into account the fact that we're big guys. Yeah, we, yeah. Are, we are all three of us. Like Decent-sized human beings, yeah. I mean. Strapping, we might say. We're mm -hmm. tall. We're long. Mm -hmm. Some of us are tall. Some of us are fat. I, I was always big. Right. I was always one of the biggest kids. I was never fat, but I was big. Big so kid. the possibility of getting stuck was legitimate for you. Well, you know, the interesting yeah. thing is the people that I know- stuck Getting is... stuck doing things that my peers were able to do was yeah. legit. Well, no, and that's, that's... Getting caught, like squeezing between things that my peers could squeeze between that maybe, or squeezing under things that my peers could squeeze. Like I always hated the story of Winnie the Pooh getting stuck in the hole. Me too. Yeah. There you go. That's horrifying. I don't that's understand like... why that was a, a good like, that story. Like the I would have thing. I would have- thrashed myself to death trying to get out of that before I starved myself slim enough to slide through. Like, yeah. <laughs> And this is not us hating on A.A. Milne again. No, this, no. Is, this is personal. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're saying he's uh, a I great recognize that writer. there are people, <laughs> like this conversation we were having with this uh, other guy who's a pastor. Who's who's a, like, who is, let us, let us say, 
a smaller, lankier dude. He is. And a lot of the guys that I know that like to go caving and stuff are actually- They're like that, right? They're all like like small- smaller dudes, yeah. Lanky guys. And well, but I just like, maybe just yesterday morning because of this conversation, you know, I'm 35, I've got some good self-control now, but I knew I was recognizing the signs of a panic attack. Mm -hmm. Like just contemplating- there's this awful story that makes me want to throw up. I don't even want to think about it, about some friends of mine when they went caving and they're like bent over double, wondering if they can get through these passageways and that stuck. That sounds awful. That it's does sound so awful. terrifying to me. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't, ha- I cannot handle hearing about it, much less walking through it. I have been in some situations like that. Maybe they scarred me. Maybe that's part of the problem, but okay, man. I'm with you guys now because I remember a story of someone, we both, we know this guy. We all know this guy. He was telling me about the joy of crawling through a cave and feeling the point where you know you can't turn around. Mm-hmm. And so the only option is to go forward. Yeah, that's and horrifying. If, that's horrifying. Yeah. That is and death. And for me, that's death. That's death. If I was with that guy, I'd be dead. Yeah. Because this guy's would. tiny. Yeah. The, yeah. It, yeah. Now, in in defense of these guys, like what one of them said to me is like, and this is part of the really great thing that Lewis does tap into when, you know, the caves open up and and so he's like, you don't know what's down there. Right. There's a world beneath your world. There's a world beneath the world that you're living in. Yeah. And there are creatures and things and caverns and rooms and you don't know. Like the idea of worlds beneath the world that you're walking on is really fascinating and exhilarating and exciting. I can understand that objectively and appreciate that objectively in the same way that I look at Don Treader and say, who knows what's beyond the horizon? Right. Well, and I think that's really, when the Hufflepuffs are all jumping into the lava planet and the, with, 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 with the Hufflepuffs? With, yes. the, uh, with the jewels that you can drink. That's yeah. one of the coolest parts in all of Narnia, I that think. That is. And, and it's the idea of... <laughs> the Hufflepuffs are they jumping in with the Slytherins. <laughs> well, it's, it, it, it's the same thing. It's one of my favorite moments I'm from the Narnia movie. personally, but... What's that? I'm a Gryffindor. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Jigglypuff. Ravenclaw. But, um, <laughs> Ravenclaw all the way. Jigglypuff. Yeah. Pokemon. Jigglypuff. <laughs> um, my favorite moment in... <laughs> The Lord of the Rings movies is when they're on the canoes or whatever, and they go by those big statues with their hands out. Absolutely, and it just like gets at this ancient Absolutely. culture that like Palantir. Yeah, this. No, that's, well, look, that's we just did a, a sanity at the movies episode where we were talking about Empire Strikes Back, mm-hmm. and we we're talking about our favorite Star Wars movie, right? And I said I might go back to Rogue One. Might be the first thing that I would go back to. Right. And what I'm thinking of when I say that is not the awesome Vader scene at the end, right? I know that's there and that's part of it. But what I'm actually thinking of are the soaring over the statues of fallen Jedis. Yeah, type yeah thing. it's really cool to like, just contemplate like there's this whole mythology, this whole story that happened that we'll never know before before the movie happened. Did I say statues of fallen Jedis? I mean the fallen statues of Jedi or whatever it was. Either way, like, I knew what you were talking way. about. Yeah, I was yeah the same that's, thing. that's that's, that's so exactly cool. what I, I think of. Because actually that's I was, so cool. Right. The cinematography of those kinds of shots. Right. Like, I mean, but, man, that's really neat. Because I drove by people dressed as Star Wars characters today, mm-hmm. and I had an epiphany again. Right. One that, despite our wonderful Christmas episode, mm-hmm. I realized I don't care about Star Wars. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's okay. We just recorded an Empire Strikes Back yeah. episode for Sanity of the Movies where we basically admitted the same thing. Yeah. Um, okay, good. Yeah. So I, yeah. I realized, I realized, to my, I realized, I'm, I'm just like, despite being a part of Star Wars episodes, I don't like Star Wars. I don't care about Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I could go the rest of my life and not watch a Star Wars movie again, except for Rogue One. Mm-hmm. 
Rogue One is different. I yeah. like Rogue One. Yeah. I think a lot of it is it t- even just in other parts of the movie, it touches on the idea of a deeper mythology. Yeah. Which is which feels profound and feels interesting. All it says is the whole of that movie is we're in the middle of this great mythological story. Right. We're showing the, you this one tiny aspect of it. But every little thing that we do is reminding you this is teeniest part of something bigger and grander and more epic. Well, it's like when you go in real life and, and stand next to a big statue or something, you can suddenly see time stretching out in front of you and behind you. You know, if you go, go to a great landmark and you understand, like George Washington stood here or the, the Romans, you have these moments in life where you can suddenly stand outside of yourself and see what a small, what a small little hobbit you are in such a great big yeah. world. And that's what fantasy can really do well. And I think this book does it well with that civilization that we're never going to know about, but that. And then ever. all the creatures that are asleep. Yeah. And, and he, but, but he does say, you know, if you get a chance and you, if you're ever in Narnia. Yeah, that's right. That's be sure to see the caves. Be sure to see those caves. Right. And see if you can't find your way there. Yeah. Well, it's great that Caspian and Rillian have the same wanderlust for that kind of thing. It's, it's a yeah. nice little parallel between and, the two books. And drawn in two opposite directions. One guy wants to go to the end of the sea. One guy wants to go deep underground. Yeah. Uh, it's just a fun little thing that he does. But I also like yeah, all those creatures and, that and are going to wake up when the apocalypse happens, Father Time. He does a lot yeah, of nice things. Yeah. With, he says stuff in like that, yeah. Here's all these weird things that are waiting until the end of time. Like, yeah. it's really cool. And uh, with really ending Caspian, it's nice because it gets to this fact that for every person who's going to be a great ruler, they have to give up something. Right. right? So Yeah, and, and and both father and son have to give up the same thing, yeah. which is which is great. So uh, It's really fascinating the way that he kills Caspian, too. Yes. You know, he could have had Caspian die at sea and be brought back. <laughs> Right. We could have had Caspian come back and live. Instead, he has Caspian from a distance. We don't get to see or know anything about it, but he gets to cast eyes on his son. Well, and it's interesting that it's almost like Caspian tries to make the same mistake. It's almost like Caspian's always got this wanderlust, and Aslan yeah. has to come to him again and say, hey, turn around. Go back. Go back. Say goodbye to your son. Just do, the, do your duty here. Yeah, Caspian... Everybody knows Caspian's lost. He has no son. He has no heir. Right. He has no idea what to do. Caspian's going to set sail. Right. And he's going to hope to encounter Aslan. But what he's really banking on is I'm just going to go into the Far East. Well, it's somewhat of a gesture of despair, right? It's like, my son's dead. I don't have anything left. I'm going to relive my my glory days yeah. kind of thing. It's like going to the Grey Havens. Yeah, yeah, and it's disguised, and maybe not entirely disguised, maybe sincerely disguised as, I don't know what to do. I need Aslan's help. Right. Like, this is where to, I He needs encounter- to tell me what to do next. The last time I saw him was this way. Right. So, you know what? Like, I'm just going to keep going. And if I can go, if it takes me until I reach Aslan's country to figure out what to do, for the kingdom, then that's what I'm going to do. Well, I actually think I haven't had, I can't think of a specific example, but I know in my life I've had that exact thought. Like in this cabin here, I had a religious experience. I taught, you know, I felt God's presence doing this thing. I feel so lost right now. I, I don't know what to do except go back to this cabin. But it, but it's that literal. It's like, let me retrace my steps. Let me walk down this path of the, of the literal woods. And it's a grand gesture. Right. And maybe an immature and foolish one, but it's still a grand gesture that says, God, I don't know. Help, please. Help. The funny thing is, I think in my life, again, I can't think of a specific example, but it feels like God has actually honored those things. Maybe sometimes he hasn't. Um, I think I can recognize the same thing in my life. Yeah. So Caspian goes, and then he actually met Aslan, and Aslan said, when you get back to Narnia, your son will be there waiting for you. Mm -hmm. So he goes back, and we see a hand raised. Yeah. So what we feel is he had time to give his son his blessing. Right. 
which is great. The end. But poor Caspian, or no, poor Rillian, I mean, yeah. who spent 10 years of his youth, childhood, didn't, and now he's got the kingdom. Didn't, didn't even get to see his regular world friends off. I, I had forgotten that Cas- we actually get to meet Caspian again in Aslan's country. That was fun. Yeah. I, I don't know that I really well, cared all that much about the prick my paw, and uh, I didn't know what Lewis was doing garbage. there. Uh, did, was, was, was there a you point? You know what yeah. he's doing there is like... Maybe I didn't want to think too blood. hard about it. I mean, yeah, yeah, sure. It's just stupid. It's it's what drove me crazy in the Don, Don Treader. Unfairly, yeah. I think. But Well, why don't you go eight bat over... Because it's not as prominent in this one, right? It's a pretty prominent part of the Don Treader in really. a way that it's not here. This book to me feels like a really relatable existential book. It's Aslan like, gives him a mission which we've all experienced, then Aslan's basically gone. And he, like Aslan's actually not, the one thing that I really appreciate, you know, appreciate about this book is really Aslan's not appearing all the time to save and, the and day. That's, that'll that's be the really case. really nice. And it is really nice. And it's also really interesting in discussing this whole book, I've only lived in the caves. Right. And forgot about the fact that the book begins, they enter Narnia into Aslan's country. Yeah. And they get where we ended the last book. Mm-hmm. And they get blown. Where he blows them away. He blows them away. <laughs> well, look, I think that that's maybe the second or third best entrance into Narnia in all seven books. Well, I think we all agreed that Voyage of the Don Treader was actually the best where they go yes. through the picture. I, I think that we should be careful not to underrate the wardrobe. The wardrobe probably does have to be the best. I even think though it has. It feels a little hack because it's the wardrobe. I mean, come on. But I think it probably has to I be the best. I think it is objectively the best. And the only thing to keep anyone from saying that is exactly because it's the best. But I would say those three, because I've walked past wardrobes and thought, what if there's a world in there? I've walked past pictures and thought, what if I could jump into the picture, Mary Poppins style? And I've watched walked past doors in random buildings and thought, what if I could open that door? And it just, yeah. all three of those, more than anything else in Narnia, ah, that stupid Prince Caspian it melted and we were in Prince Caspian. That, that, that's the worst, I think. What? The way that they get whisked out, out of the train the station horn? or whatever. I, I don't think it's the worst. I also, I was really taken with it. Maybe because it was just the other way in, the second way in. Mm-hmm. I think called each, by the horn. They were called by the horn. I thought that was really cool. Being called by the horn is cool. I will also and say- the mystery of it, like the whole mystery of, you know, they're at the train station, they're dreading this thing, and they feel this pricking, and they end up in this weird, they have to figure it all out right. from scratch. And all the mystery of like the time elapsing. That's cool. Caspian really came cool. up a few notches in my Caspian. I really liked. I always felt stupid because I loved Caspian, and everybody thought that Caspian was lame. Oh. Well, guys, there's still so much to talk about about the silver chair. I think we're gonna have to do a part two because, frankly, we all have to go to bed right now, right? All right, guys, let's do some donor shoutouts. Brandon, yeah, I want you to do a different accent <laughs> for each person. You know what? I'm in the mood to do it. All right. I'm glad. <laughs> and then Jake? Yeah, I will also do a different accent uh, for yeah. each person. Jake, okay. you can just tiredly repeat the name. in a. No, he's going to do a different accent. Okay, good. Though. Listen. Yeah. All right. Uh, it's, it'll be very subtle. <laughs> all right. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Oh, Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. <laughs> Jake, the artful Anthony Dodger. The artful Anthony Dodger. Oh, yeah. That's a little Lithuanian right there. That wasn't really nice. <laughs> Brandon, for all your cigar needs, Little Anthony's Cigar Store. Uh, uh, Anthony's Cigar Store. <laughs> Why is that different? Never mind. Jake's going. Uh, no idea. The Immortal Chelsea E. Jake. The Immortal Chelsea E. Jake. Yeah. Uh, Brandon, Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. <laughs> <laughs> was, that, was that Southern or uh, Cockney? It started Southern and ended Cockney. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> you should just try and combine two accents every day. You and, you and Bert. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lily of the Valley, Jake. Lily of the Valley. 
Brennan Ander, 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 and Ashton the Lovebirds. Ander and Ashton the Lovebirds. Jake the Keithmaster. The Keithmaster. Brendan, David's Mighty Men Trucking. The Zeva's Mighty Men Trucking. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> you guys remember that one time where I convinced you that I was doing something special and unique for each person, but that I was really amazing. was Keep doing not. <laughs> oh, I was so mad. <laughs> John and Jill and Little Baby Max, Jake. <laughs> John and Jill and Little Baby Max, Jake. Jay and Katie are called Love Cheese, Brandon. Jay and Katie are called Love Cheese, Nathan. Maya. This person actually requested a new name. What? Who? Not Maya. No. My beloved mother, Beth. What? Give it to her. All right. Beth, the- Beloved mother of death. Beth, the goddess of death. <laughs> Fine. That's what it is, Mom. You wanted a new name? You weren't happy being my beloved mother? You're M- Beth. <coughs> the, the beloved mother of death. The beloved mother of death. <laughs> or goddess of death, whichever is. Do we like knows? goddess or? I like mother. Of beloved death. mother of death. That's great. Yeah. Whichever. Um, Beth, the beloved mother of death. Beth, the beloved mother of death. That's you. And of course, yeah. Console Prime Adam. Console Prime Adam. Yeah. Galactic Princess Emily. Galactic Princess Emily. <laughs> <laughs> All our British listeners feel right at home finally. <laughs> I dare. Hey, British. <coughs> They can understand you now. Fletcher, the woe-bedraggled wizard of yore. Fletcher, the woe-bedraggled wizard of yore. Jeremy, the dark-hooded lord of death. Oh, Jeremy, the dark-hooded lord of death. Nathan, not me, of course. Nathan, not Nathan. And, of course, oh, I'm gonna, <laughs> now that we're married, I'm gonna, I might have to get this person off of the donation list, but, I mean, we like donating and everything, but, you know, I donate my time. And Budgets anyway, and stuff. The incandescent merit. Good grief, I'll say it. Come on, Brandon. And Maya! Of course, Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. <laughs> DJ, DJ, DJ Sammy G. Benny and Danny Tiberius. Hey there, mate. Benny and Danny there, Tiberius. Hey, watch out for the crocodiles. <laughs> uh, you listeners wow. should see Brennan's despairing expression after he did that was something, something else. I'll tell you. That's not a knife. <laughs> Eric and Catherine the Lovebird. Eric and Catherine the Lovebird. Professor and Lady X. How do Russians sound? Professor. Oh, shoot. Professor oh. and Lady X. <laughs> yeah, so that's the stink. Classic Russian. And of course, your Russians are French. Yeah. Dylan, the Death Dealer of Doom. Dylan, the Death Dealer of Doom. Today was written and produced by Brandon, Jake, Nathan. Executive produced by Jake and Nathan. Go to Patreon, as we've emphasized many times over. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. Support this fine work. Don't be an AA Milne. An AA Milne. AA Milne. AA Milne. Be a CCL. What? CSL. CSL. Until next time, stay sane.